Today's scripture comes from Matthew. Uh, it's verses 17 through 26, and then 38 through 48. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to the one who asks of you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to jump back just a little bit and set the stage um, just to, to help us re-center ourselves with where we are in, in the Gospel of Matthew. So at this point in Matthew, um, Jesus had been kind of preaching and teaching in Galilee for a while, and he was gathering um, this pretty large following. Um, but we kind of get a sense from the end of chapter four in Matthew that um, the, Jesus's healing was more of the draw, right? People were bringing um, friends and family who needed, to, needed healing. And so um, this big following that Jesus had wasn't necessarily so much about his teaching, but more about like the free healthcare. And so um, Jesus sees all these folks in chapter five and decides to walk up a mountain and sit down and start chatting. And that's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is kind of like the keynote address in the Gospels. This is kind of the longest uninterrupted teaching we have um, in all of our Gospels. And so um, it should maybe be noted that, um, first of all, Matthew never refers to it as a sermon. And there might be some evidence that this didn't really all happen at once. Right? That instead, Matthew kind of collected some of Jesus' teachings and put them together in a way that made sense. And um, Amy Jolabine kind of bluntly offers this, and she says, had Jesus delivered all of the verses in Matthew 5 through 7 at one time, the disciples' heads would have exploded. 
and we also have evidence that we see pieces of these teachings in other Gospels that are scattered, right? So um, we see some in Luke 6, in Luke 12, in Luke 16, um, some of it in Mark. And so we see these, these teachings scattered as well. This is the only place where we have them all together. Um, but regardless of whether or not Jesus spoke all of this at once, we can kind of assume that Matthew set this up this way to help establish Jesus's authority, right? To help establish him as a, an authority figure. And so um, considering the subject matter, especially that what we're talking about today, and the location, we kind of automatically draw parallels between the Sermon on the Mount and Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, so Matthew is using this as a way to present Jesus as the new upholder and interpreter of Torah, right? So kind of a new Moses. Um, and starting in verse 17, that's pretty much exactly what Jesus says, right? He's not here to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Um, now, because it's Trinity Sunday, I want to talk a little bit more about that parallel between Mount Sinai and the, and the, the Sermon on the Mount, just because I think it does... Um, a really interesting job of highlighting two sides of the Trinity, right? So on Mount Sinai, we see um, a heavenly God descending on a mountain with fire and smoke um, and earthquakes, and no one is allowed to approach unless they want to die, right? And in the Sermon on the Mount, we see an incarnate God who walks up a mountain and sits down um, and anyone who gathers around is healed. And I think that that's just such um, a fabulous way to reveal the mystery and the magnitude of all that God is, this triune God, and seeing that, that we hear God's voice um, in lightning and thunder and in a still small voice and in silence. Um, so I just, I kind of love that image, but I digress from our scripture. Um, so back to verses 17 through 20. Uh, Jesus affirms that he's here to fulfill the law and that if we want to take part in the kingdom, then we'd be wise to uphold it. Um, and he starts laying out what are called the antitheses. Um, so the antitheses are six short teachings, or for us, six paragraphs. And they're all on different topics. So there's anger, divorce, adultery, oaths, retaliation, and dealing with our enemies. Um, but they all begin with some version of, you've heard it said X, Y, and Z, but I say to you, right? Um, now, I want to admit that I have struggled for a really long time with most of these antitheses. Um, they somehow, like, I've always been on board with the last two, right? Like, dealing with your enemies, eye for, like, reversing an eye for an eye, like, I can, I can get on board with those because those seem really consistent with the Jesus that I've met in the rest of the Gospels, right? He's kind of making the law softer. He's making it nicer. He's making it about love. And I'm on board with that Jesus. Um, but in some of the other ones, these first four, they're like the way that I understood them or the way that I've read them or maybe just the way that I've seen them sometimes weaponized or used against people, they seem like Jesus is holding people to completely unrealistic expectations and then dooming them to hell if they fail. Like, and that doesn't track for me. Um, it just doesn't align with, 
with the Jesus that I come to know in the rest of the Gospels. And the, the one on anger is particularly problematic for me because I'm angry like 87% of the time. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this yesterday when I went in to grab a carryout meal from a restaurant and I was waiting for a few minutes and a family came up to pay their bill, a lovely family with three young kids, came up to pay their bill and the waitress came right over and took care of them and ignored me. And I like went into a mental anger spiral for a while that didn't end <laughs> until I got into the car and turned on an audiobook, which was all about how I'm supposed to be more like Jesus. <laughs> um, so it's problematic. Like if, if, if we are not only not supposed to murder but not supposed to be angry, then I am, screwed. <laughs> and I've always felt like we can't live up to these expectations, and Jesus is being a little bit judgmental and a little bit unreasonable, and I resent that. Um, and so for a long time, I've done what a lot of good Christians do when they struggle with a passage in Scripture and ignored it. I chose the part that I liked, and I focused on the parts about love and grace and just put the rest aside. Um, but I was forced to kind of dig into those in the past few weeks. And I came to realize that all of these antitheses, all of these readings Jesus made about love, they may not sound like it at first, but all of them are telling us how we can love better. Um, now, referring to these passages as the antitheses is a little bit counterintuitive because they're not really the antithesis of anything. They're not the antithesis of the law. Instead, Jesus is um, extending the law. He's strengthening it. He's making it more robust, not the opposite. And so we, he starts by talking about murder, right, as we've already mentioned. Um, and he expands this to include anger. So he's not just condemning an act anymore, but condemning an emotion. He's encouraging us to be kind, to not call names, to be reconciled to our, our neighbor in the case of any conflict. And I think that this one seems particularly relevant not only because I have anger issues, um, but also because we live in a society where people have forgotten how to disagree respectfully. There are kids who are literally being bullied to death. And so this is something that is very clearly about love. It has a high expectation, but it's about love. When Jesus talks about adultery, um, again, he tells us not only don't commit adultery, but don't even lust. He's expanding it once again from our actions to our thoughts. And once again, he's making it about love because it's forcing us to not objectify other people based on physicality alone, right? We have to look at a person in a holistic manner. We have to see them mind, body, and spirit, and not just focus on one attribute. And so again, it's about love. The section on divorce I really struggle with because I think I've seen this used against people more than any of the other ones. Um, and it's really a hard thing to see. Um, but in this section, Jesus goes beyond demanding lawful divorces and suggests not to have any divorces, um, but instead to strive for peace and for reconciliation. But he also grants an exception to this, which I think is important. Um, in our reading, the word pornea is translated as unchastity. 
but the meaning of this word is actually really vague. So the root of this word is the, or this word is the, the root of the word pornography. And much like the Supreme Court has said, we, it's hard to define, but we know it when we see it. And we can kind of take the same thing from this word pornea, um, is that Jesus exhorts us towards peace in our marriages, but he knows that there are exceptions in certain cases. And that's an important thing to remember. Um, the fourth antithesis, it refers to oaths. Um, and once again, Jesus goes from not swearing false oaths to not wanting oaths at all. Instead, just being truthful in everything you say. Um, so it was kind of common practice at the time that um, folks would swear oaths to make some words more true than others. And Jesus says, just make everything true, right? Just be truthful in all of your words. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. And so reading these four, these first four antitheses, I think, for me at least, um, has helped me understand Jesus in the context of the whole story a little bit better, right? The Old Testament and the New Testament, and seeing how he kind of aligns those things. But um, even more than that, even more than the fact that he is showing us how to love better in all of these, um, he's also internalizing the law for us, right? As we kind of mentioned, he's transforming the law from being something focused on external actions and forcing us to internalize it, to see ourselves in it. Um, I, last weekend, spent the weekend at summer camp training about 40 camp counselors, just general best practices on how to work with kids. And one of the tools that we always give them to help set up behavior expectations, um, we tell them to get out a flip chart and on this flip chart to write um, questions. The first questions are, how do you want to feel at camp? What do you want your, your week at summer camp to be like? And the kids brainstorm answers to these questions, right? So they wanna have fun, they wanna do the zip line, they wanna make new friends, they wanna try something new. And they write all of these out and then they ask a few more questions, which are what choices can you make what can you do to make sure we all have this fun, exciting week? And what maybe negative choices might you make that would distract from this? And so the kids brainstorm answers to all of these. And then at the end, they go outside and they stick their hand in a mud puddle and they come back inside and put their handprint on it to, to kind of as an agreement, right? Like it's their signature that they're agreeing to this. And as I read through the antitheses, I can't help but think that maybe this is what Jesus is kind of doing with us. Right? He's taking these, this focus on actions to a focus on emotions, to a focus on motivation. He's making this law less about what I do and more about who I am. Okay? It becomes a part of my identity, identity and he's influencing my, my motivations. Right? Um, so now, after I read this and after I try and live up to the expectations that Jesus set, I'm not doing it because I'm afraid of punishment. Now I'm doing it because I wanna make new friends at camp, right? Like now I'm doing it because I, I want to be able to love better. Um, 
And I think those things are important, but it really doesn't change the fact that the expectations Jesus has set are still unattainable. Like, they are still ridiculously high for us. Um, but again, I think this serves a purpose. So these expectations help to make the law universally relevant, right? When he sets these high expectations, when he goes from making it about my actions to making it about my emotions, my, my core beliefs, then the law isn't just for those people anymore, right? Previously, the law wasn't for me. It didn't really pertain to me because I hadn't planned to murder anyone. But now it does affect me because I do get angry. And it affects everyone because everyone gets angry. Everyone has lustful thoughts. Everyone breaks promises. And I am guessing here, but I'm assuming that at some point everybody wants to divorce their spouse. <laughs> um, so it's no longer a law just for them. It's for me too. And I think that this knowledge, like that key component helps prepare us for these last two antitheses. Um, and I would still argue that these last two have the broadest applications for our life as a whole. So the next one, the fifth one on retaliation, um, that starts out with the eye for the eye, an eye for an eye. So I think it's important that we recognize that when the laws about an eye for an eye were laid down, these were not systematic punishments that God was demanding, right? These were boundaries, okay? God was not saying, um, you have to punish someone this way, but it was a set of guidelines for people who might be seeking excessive retaliation, okay? So, um, so for instance, if I took somebody's eye, it's not God saying, you have to give an eye in return. It is saying that now no one is allowed to take your head for that. And Jesus' and listeners, as he was speaking about that, would have understood that, right? Um, they would have understood that when Jesus started talking about this, he was talking about retaliation and what to do if someone wrongs you, okay? What to do when someone offends you um, or tries to take advantage of you. And mercy had already been demonstrated many times in Jewish scripture. This wasn't a new idea for them. Um, and it was practiced by people of the time, but Jesus, again, was coming in with something different. He was saying that it is time to um, not only give just retaliation, but no retaliation at all, and do that in a way that surprises your offender. Do it in a way that catches them off guard. And the benefit to this is that as you're doing that, it forces your, your persecutor to recognize your humanity a little bit more. So if someone hits me and I turn the other cheek, they are forced to look me in the eye as I do that. If someone asks for my coat and I, have, and I give them my cloak too, then I am naked and they are forced to see me at my most vulnerable. And if someone wants me to walk with them a mile, which I should kind of preface as saying this was standard practice for soldiers of the day. People, if they requested something or requested to use your animal or to use you to help them carry things, you were required to go with them a mile. So if someone requested that you went with them a mile to go with them too, now you have more time to talk with this person, to get to know them 
and to show them more love. Um, so in this teaching, Jesus expanded the law again, right? Show mercy and grace in a way that is surprising. And he's made it easier to do this by reminding us in the past antitheses that we need mercy and grace too, right? We are guilty of doing these things as well. And so it becomes just a little bit easier maybe to go above and beyond. Um, so finally, Jesus tells us not only to love our neighbors, but to love our enemies too. Um, and he even goes on to tell us how hard that is, right? But again, he's already let us know that our enemies are no different than us, okay? He's demonstrated that we all lust and get angry and fight and wanna get even. Um, so we're just like our so-called evildoers. And so by the time we get here, by the time he starts telling us that we need to love our enemies, we already know that we have to put our stones down because we've sinned too. Our enemies are broken just like us. But this one is still really hard. Um, sometimes it's hard because we don't always know who our enemies are. Um, it's really hard to find ways to love in societal systems that cause pain, for instance. But at other times, we know exactly who our enemies are and we just don't want to love them. Right? Sometimes our enemies just walked into an elementary school with an assault rifle. And I don't know about you, but at those moments, I am fundamentally opposed to grace. We don't want to know that our enemy was a teenager who was being cared for by his grandparents because his mom struggled with addiction. We don't want to know that our enemy never wanted to go to school and was not on track to graduate because every time he did, he got bullied for a speech impediment and for being poor and for not having the right clothes. It's easier to just hate them. But luckily, Jesus says we can't do that. He knew that the darkness of the world, the brokenness of the world is contagious as we have seen. But so is love. And when we love our enemies, we have the power to outshine the darkness and to heal the brokenness and to be a part of the kingdom. And I think that that's why he set the expectations so high, is not so that they would be unattainable, but so that we never stop reaching for them. We never get complacent. We never think we've arrived, but we always work to love harder. <laughs>